My name is Gary Walsh, I'm the producer of Older Than Ireland. My name is Alex Fegan and I am the director of Older Than Ireland. Why did you want to do this film and what do you hope people take away from this film after they see it? Well, you see, in Ireland we're celebrating this year the centenary of the 1916 Rising. So uh, we thought it would be interesting to interview people who were all born before that year and to get their view on what it means to be Irish, what it means to be 100, and most importantly, what it means to be human. And so what we hope to that people kind of uh, learn from the film or take from the film is you know, a, a greater understanding of what it means to be alive, really. Well, I think as well... Um you know, we're at, they are a very unique group of people and I'd say probably, and it won't take very long, but where reaching 100 won't be considered, it'll be the same as hitting 60 or 70, so um, I, I think it, is, it was important that we kind of made a, a record of these people. As Alex said, these, these were the last people born before 1916. And it's been uh, such a uh, kind of what was turbulent and but interesting time in our, in, in Ireland's mm -hmm. history, um, and these are the people that kind of helped uh, shape it. Not in the very obvious way, like your, uh, you know, like our our uh, political um, heroes and that, but just these are just everyday normal people that lived in this state in the state of Ireland for 100 years, and so I think it's important to kind of capture their stories and, you know, let them talk and, and uh, yeah. So. There was an interesting story you had about uh, the, what was it, Luke? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Could you just, uh, what, was, what was the, that was the, it kind of gave you a scare. So uh, what happened there? So on one occasion while filming uh, the oldest Irish man on, in, on record, uh, he had, uh, he had a, a condition called narcolepsy where uh, if he got excited at all, he'd, he'd fall asleep. And uh, he was telling us the story of his first kiss, which was very dramatic to him, yeah. and still, uh, still kind of caused him great excitement. So once he'd finished telling us the story, he had a big yelp and went Yahoo, and then he just fell asleep. But we thought he, we thought he had died. So uh, in our haste to uh, get a nurse, we nearly knocked over the camera, which was very expensive. <laughs> Uh, luckily, uh, the, ca uh, the camera operator column ca caught the camera just before it hit the ground, and uh, we ran outside. The nurse came in and said, "Oh no, he does that all the time. He just, uh, he just, he just when he gets excited, he falls asleep." And then once he woke up again, he was he was uh, full of energy, and he told us about the story of his wedding day. Oh, nice! So you, there were you said there were three hundred uh, centenni centenarians centenarians. Yeah. To figure out how to pronounce that no. one, <laughs> centenarians in Ireland and. Um, how did you find these particular 30? So we, we, uh, we first of all put ads in various newspapers and that yielded some results, but ultimately what uh, yielded the most results was sort of a word of mouth where each centenarian would know of another centenarian in the next parish mm. and they would recommend us to go to that centenarian and then we'd film them and then invariably they would know another centenarian in the next parish. So they tended to know of other 100-year-olds that lived in, in, their, in their own county. Mm -hmm. And that's, so that's how we kind of uh, managed to find them all. And as I said, we're very competitive with each other. They'd... Uh, <laughs> yeah. They'd, uh, they'd always know the one that was just, you know, uh, slightly a bit older or, you know, and, you know, that's, I know so-and-so there. They're 102 and, you know, they're 103. <laughs> they don't smoke, I do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know you didn't like this question, but have, how many of them have uh, passed on since the, the completion of the, of the movie? 
Uh, well, half of them, pretty much half. 15, yeah. Just uh, last week was the most recent one, uh, Kitty, uh, who if you've seen the film, uh, she's the one who thinks people are eating too many vegetables these days. <laughs> and that's the reason people aren't, you know, but, uh, but I mean, it's you do get very close to them, and uh, I mean, not just from spending time with them, but from going through the whole uh, process of putting it together and the edit, and you kind of, we probably feel a lot closer to them than probably they do to us, so it does, I mean, it kind of does hit you every time you get an email or a phone call or a text from one of the families to say someone, one of them has passed away, and we got a lovely message off um, the Kitty's family last uh, week to kind of say, like, she... Uh, it was the, was it her daughter, wasn't it? Uh, her, her, her granddaughter. Yeah, her granddaughter. Niece, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, who said who kind of they thought that you know the film had given her probably another year of life, and I was just saying inside, you know, she was always asking. They kind of seen a new side where she was always asking about how many likes has her <laughs> has her picture on the on the older Ireland Facebook page got, how many <laughs> shares does she have, and where are people messaging from, and you know. She's very excited about it coming to America and screening over there. So, yeah. um, you said something about the script. What did you do? Did you let them lead the discussion, or did you kind of like just come up with like the more per- come up with the more personal questions and let them just go from whatever question you gave them? It was very much a case of just letting them. I mean, we we, we had an idea that we would tell a story in chronological order from their youth to their old age. So we tried to kind of start off by tell, getting them to tell us about their first memories and then as the interview would progress we'd start to get them to we'd ask them about uh, their you know memories of their wedding day and their honeymoon and and then as the as the, the final stages of the, of the interview with each person we'd get them to tell you know ask them about their their idea of the afterlife and what it means to be a hundred and then so the the, uh, the the arc of the film mirrored the arc of life right. in some respects mm-hmm. and uh, so in, in a way it, it was it was an easy edit because we sort of knew the general structure mm-hmm. but it, there's uh, with a film like this and Gary would agree it's how many ways can you skin a cat and <laughs> you, you, we could have we could have edited this film 20 30 different ways right. and each in each film probably would have been equally good if not better than the last mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much stuff which we just couldn't put in um, but ultimately we did know just you know we what we knew what what you know how we were going to tell a general story uh, and so that that sort of informed how we would ask the questions mm-hmm. so uh, you you said that obviously because you're talking to 30 different people of over 100 years there's 3,000 years so how did you decide what to edit out and keep in the story I mean aside from obviously the 1916 and then the, the Irish Civil War how did you decide to watch it well, take we, out initially as, we, as I was saying uh, there was uh, we had a desire to kind of pick moments in each decade and get them to reflect upon those moments but very quickly we realised that uh, really it's the personal journey which is much more interesting mm-hmm. so they're this, the universal stuff which relates to us all it doesn't matter whether you're Irish or whether you're from else, from elsewhere, uh, you know. As I said, first kiss, first, you know, da- going to the dance. It's really about relationships, mm-hmm. and and those universal subjects just seem more interesting to them and to us. Right. The website is olderthanireland.com. Yeah. Olderthanireland.com, and uh, like our Facebook page. <laughs> yep. yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, why did you want to do this film in particular? Uh, what really appealed to me about Traders was the concept. It's a really smart, high concept, and um, that was very attractive. Um, also, I had 
worked with both Rachel and Peter, the writers and directors, um, but not for a number of years. Mm. And uh, we'd worked together in in, uh, in TV. Um, and I thought that the, the idea was great. I thought that the execution of it was going to be challenging and mm-hmm. fun, and that was really what attracted me to the project. My name is Harry Fox, and four months ago, I worked in international asset management. I'm going to tell you what happened when the company lost 14 billion overnight and we all lost our jobs. You know, kind of having the voiceover as um, as a device within the film it was important to really, I suppose, kind of position, um, position him as someone who the audience could relate to and were, you know, privy to his innermost thoughts and his mm-hmm. ideas of the world and really help us to kind of identify him, identify with him. Um, and so when things start to get a little bit morally ambiguous or, you know, when decisions he makes are a bit further than perhaps the most, the, the regular kind of theatre-going audience would be, that it's too late now because you're already with that character and so you're with him on that journey. So I think that the... The, the voiceover in that regard has, has always been used in lots of different films, mm-hmm. you know, um, to that effect. Right. Um, about your other work, you work with Women in Film and Television Ireland. Yeah. Um, first, uh, for those who don't know what that is, what do you strive to do? And also, you were talking also at the Q&A about the increase in, l- lately at least, mm-hmm. uh, the relative increase in women in producing and directing and everything mm-hmm. else. Um, yeah, just uh, mm. just yeah, just talk about about, about sure. that, like elaborating. Um, well, Women in Film and Television is a global organisation um, which has uh, chapters worldwide and throughout the the different states in North America, um, and its main aim is really to have uh, parity of representation of um, and parity of pay, you know, for for women in the audiovisual sector, both on screen um, in terms of appearing and in terms of kind of story representation. And also in terms of um, of uh, the work itself, and so behind the camera, I guess mm-hmm. too. Um, there isn't really an increase in the number of women right. who are being financed to make film and uh, and TV. Certainly not in the US, as far as I'm aware, um, and certainly not, that's not the case in Ireland or across Europe either. Um, something that, that, and that's something that, that we in Ireland are working really hard to, uh, to, to rectify that situation. Um, so we're gathering data at the moment about, you know, how many, uh, what funds are, because a lot in Ireland a lot of uh, funding for films and for TV comes from the public sector, so from either um, the likes of the Irish Film Board, for example, um, or RTE, which is the state broadcaster, also gets a large amount of money from the, the licence fee, so it's, it's public money. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the US, which often lose financing from a lot of um, equity um, and private investors. And while we have that in Ireland too, um, we also have the, the public funds. And so that's really where our first port of call is to explore um, what is the decision-making process in um, allocating funding and support uh, to male and female uh, filmmakers and also what the level of that support is. Um, and in Ireland currently... Um, uh, female female helmed work is uh, represents seventeen percent, so one seven uh, percent of the um, Irish Film Board's output um, in terms of produced work, um, 
and we're looking to gather more intelligence and more information as to uh, why that's the case and what measures can be put in place to um, to improve the situation and to provide the audience with a greater diversity of stories and um, different outlooks on the world. And that's, we've had some great success in the recent uh, few months. Uh, we did our, our kind of a first official call for members um, in September uh, 2015, at the end of the month. And by December, on the same day that the Waking the Feminists movement was taking place at the Abbey Theatre, the Irish Film Board made a public statement to say that they would have gender parity of funding in the next three years. So I think that's really positive um, and fantastic that they've taken such a strong and public leadership position mm-hmm. on this um, on this issue. Um, and so we're looking to work closely with them um, and with the other kind of key stakeholders in terms of um, broadcasters and other other funders and financiers of work. Um, to ensure that those that, that, that the statement that they made uh, will come to fruition and, and that we'll have a success. Thank you so much for talking with me. Um... Why a musical and why a musical in Irish? If you look at interviews with filmmakers, if you're an aspiring filmmaker, I mean, um, they have very... The advice they give you is quite basic. It's very difficult to tell someone, like... Um, how to become a filmmaker. It seems like an impossible task, but the only thing that will come up time and time and time and time again is to try and do something different, but you know, make sure that it's something that's true to yourself or whatever, whatever, something that you want to do. Now, I never thought I was going to use Irish in film because I looked at Irish films, Irish language films that had come out. Um, none of them were very well seen, very hard to get them programmed. Um, it's not that hard to get them funded because people are trying to fund Irish language things, but um, at the same time, it's very rare that an Irish language film will get out of Ireland. It will be seen outside of the Irish television station or what have you. So when I was making a musical, I thought, musicals are very odd in Ireland. People don't make musical films in Ireland. Um, even though we have a real rich musical culture, everyone learns how to speak, uh, to play Irish instruments from their six, five years old. So like the Irish um, tradition of playing music is extremely, extremely big. And it, it does um, appear in filmmaking, you look at the filmmaking of John Carney with Once and Begin Again, mm-hmm. and um, not so much musical films, they, they kind of get lumped into that genre of being a musical, but um, they just use the music like a traditional musical would. So anyway, I was thinking of doing a musical film after seeing the films of Jacques Demy, after seeing uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, La Demoiselle de Rochefort, I really thought that he was doing something in his own time that was completely stand out from anything anyone was doing in the French New Wave. To make a film inspired by American musicals during this time of post-modernity and such and such. So I'd, origin- I'd originally written it in English and um, wasn't really speaking to me. I kind of felt like an imitator of those um, musicals in the 1930s, the Gene Kellys and such, and that was not really interested me. I was interested by Jacques Demy. So then it came around to the idea of, well, I'm an Irish native speaker, I love Irish, I know it's difficult to put these in films, but there was some success with people uh, recently, what they would do is they would cover popular songs in Irish, popular English songs and they translate into Irish, they did very, very well, and in fact they made a TV show you know, called Epics, based off that, and I really liked Irish music, speaking Irish, so I thought that by translating this kind of you know, new age musical to the Irish language, 
that um, I could fulfill my own you know, artistic um, desires of using the Irish language, but at the same time, I wouldn't alienate people. It's very difficult to get people to watch Irish language content. As soon as they leave secondary school and they finish their leaving cert, they get quite alienated. In the way that Irish is taught at schools, it's taught to, to children as if they should know it. So it's very, very difficult. People really hate Irish if they're not language, native Irish speakers. They find it incredibly difficult and they kind of resent the language as soon as they leave. So I was kind of faced with that. How could I use Irish to try to get around that? And um, in a sense, when the film came out and uh, the trailer debuted online, it was shared by loads of publications and um, you know, screened on the film festivals. It did work. People who were younger kind of appreciated seeing Irish spoken in Dublin, um, spoken well, the Dublin looked very nice. It wasn't used as a miserable place. They kind of saw, like, no, Irish language in that context is completely new. Irish language in the arts is used in very, very dark, you know, literature and theatre and filmmaking. The Irish language filmmaking that I know is extremely, you know, dark, uh, miserableist films, uh, which doesn't help the cause of the Irish language, in my opinion. Um, so that was kind of... That was a long-winded answer to why using Irish... <laughs> why I made Irish language musical. Oh, and for the earlier question, filmmakers tell you to do something that's not been done before. No one had made an Irish language musical film. There had been Irish language musical plays, but nothing filmed. Right. Um, so I wanted to get in there and do something that I could call... I could market as being the first. This is the first something. is always a good thing to market yourself with. Right. Um, and they're the kind of cynical answers. You know, you put after saying, I really want to make something Irish. And I really wanted people to watch it, so how, did I, how could I go about that? Um, the, the credits, I, I don't usually ask about the credits, but it looked like the credits were stop motion. Yeah, they were. <laughs> I, thought, I thought they were. I was, I, was, I was about to ask you, like, what was the... Why did you uh, I really stop liked motion stop motion, and I was, making a stop, I was making a stop motion short at the time, because Bonsoir Luna took a long time to make. It, it actually, um, the post-fiction that film was very difficult, because um, I wanted the film to look... It was shot in the sunlight, a lot of it. Dublin doesn't have much sun, so there was a lot of issues with that. So I had to learn much more invasive color correction techniques. So the film was shot over a period of two weeks. I edited it for about eight months. So I had other projects on the go at the time. So I was making a stop motion film, and I was like, oh, I, credit's really boring. People don't stay for credits. I'm going to make some credits. <laughs> and that's what I did. I was, and it was like, I, I, people did have, have said things like yourself about credits. They've been like, what's with the credits? Um, not really in a negative way. No, I'm so, I was just surprised. Like, no one ever does stop motion credits. That's awesome. Yeah, I was like, watching them again just in the screening there, and I hadn't seen it for a while. And I was like, oh, God, yeah, I made these. That was weird. <laughs> but I do like them. I, well, I think I mean, it's fun. Like, it's, I mean, to be honest, an Irish language musical with stop motion credits, that just, like, that's the real outlier, which I think is what makes your film so unique. <laughs> it's like it's something no one has literally, as far as I've ever known, ever done. Yeah, so it's I not something I could say, even... stop, wait for the credits. You know, I never, I didn't say, I'd like, it's nice language music. I am, it's got stop motion credits. I should probably <laughs> add that in um, as uh, a little addendum in, in next time I go and talk about the film or an article while it comes out or something. Um, so was the story, like, based on any, like, experiences that you've had any, or that the cast had or the anybody involved with the film had or was it all just like oh let's just write about a, a guy who's in love with a I tell you there's a tradition in Irish filmmaking or in Irish culture of the disapproving mother it crops up in a lot of narrative and a lot of stories it's a very Irish narrative thing it is and um, I think yeah because it came to me in the sense that I um, I've known some blind people and I haven't really seen blind people represented on screen and um, I can see why people wouldn't. They're kind of like, what's the, you know, what's the point? But it was something I wanted to explore because I hadn't seen it before. So the character Luna being the blind barista also played into the idea of the fantastical cafe rung with, you know, using bells for her to work there. 
And I like the idea of her being very independent despite her disability. Now, the disapproving mother really played into that in the sense that no matter how independent this person could be, the mother would not be happy to let her, you know, reign free mm -hmm. in, in that sense. So I kind of used that stock kind of um, archetypal character that comes into Irish narrative so much. And um, oh, thank you very much. Um, that's that's that character and use her in, and put her into a modern setting of like she's not just disapproving of this person because that's what Irish mothers do. She was disapproving of him because of a very valid point fear of the you know her blind um, daughter kind of um, lumping herself in with someone who perhaps was you know a layabout. That was the idea as well that right. because he was a street artist. What is that? You know, there's a kind of um, I mentioned the Mary Poppins thing in the screening, and that's because I think that the lead character is very reminiscent of Dick Van Dyke in Mary Poppins, because <laughs> you don't really know, like, how does this person make money, does he? He kind of just has a different job every day. Mm. He's this kind of fantastical figure that roams throughout the narrative with um, no, no real agency, but he just kind of seems to be okay, and you don't really know what he was. So that I place that kind of character in, in my musical in a sense... A mother would, of course, hate that person. Would be like, well, this person's terrible. Like, you know, obviously, yeah, he's great. He's very fun and stuff, but um, there's no um, stability there. So that's, that's, you know, done so well. All right. That's it. Thanks very much. No problem. Is he dead? <gasps> I guess the first question would just be why this movie why'd you want to do it i think there's two things the irish do uh, are, are known for um emigration and drink and this is a doc about drink and immigration and uh, on their own they're deadly enough but the cocktail of drink and emigration together um has sent people to early graves um also I suppose there's a political dimension to this as well. We've done documentaries of the Irish in the UK about the guys who fell through the cracks. Mm -hmm. I have a sense in America we haven't gone there yet for some reason. We like to tell the stories of the Kennedys. We like to tell the stories of the Fords. Uh, we like to tell the stories of the success stories mm -hmm. of the Irish who uh, went to America. In fact... I had two guys, two Irish-Americans, lined up who were good talkers for this story, but pulled out. And I, do, I think they didn't like the portrayal that we were doing of the Irish as drinkers. So I think uh, Irish-America uh, likes to hold up an image of the Irish being very successful. Um, but we all know, you and I know, that a lot of them ended up as hobos. You saw all the footage of the Bowery. Mm -hmm. uh, it was littered with Irish surnames, all those slop houses. So um, I think that's another reason uh, why this story had to be told. And I think there will be many more stories about the, the negative side of Irish immigration to the States. We didn't all succeed. Mm -hmm. uh, especially with the film Brooklyn that just uh, came out last year. There's that one scene in the... During Thanksgiving, there was a scene in a banquet hall where all the homeless Irish people came in and they were fed by the local Irish people who, and the parish who had, like, succeeded and gotten jobs. So that was like what you just said. I, th I think there is more of a focus on and not everybody was quite so lucky. That's true, yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think that's definitely starting to become more of a focus now. Like, it's not just the Irish were not just this lucky. All right, this was like a small percentage. This is what happened for a lot of people. You betcha, yeah. yeah. And in fact, um, Pat told me a story 
that her grandfather was cleaning cars in the 1910s and uh, at night in cotton ammonia. Oh, wow. So they're doing pretty rubbish jobs as well, which wouldn't have been that healthy. A lot of them were digging the tunnels. Mm-hmm. A lot of them got blown sky high. Um, so, no, these stories are emerging, let's be fair, but the real kind of hobo stories, uh, you're hearing them in London, you're hearing them in Birmingham, but you're not hearing them in Chicago, in Boston, in New York so much. Right. But I think right. they, they are um, emerging. But what was interesting as well, what Anthony said... Anthony Malloy, uh, when he said he couldn't quite fathom how he fell off the back of the herd. He always thought the herd would, of the Irish always looked out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And they did, to be fair, like you said, in Brooklyn. Uh, they did look after the Irish. Um, but you can be sure that some guys were just too unmanageable, you know what I mean? Right. And let's be honest, if I was walking down the street and I saw Mike Malloy coming towards me, you might cross the other side exactly. of the street. This guy yeah. is a wild character, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, again, how did you find out about him? What uh, what was the picture? How did you get that? Yeah, I was sitting down watching telly, and uh, the QBC, BBC show QI came on, mm-hmm. and they did this um, story about durable Mike Malloy, and uh, I was just gobsmacked by how I'd never heard of this story and I asked around and very few people had heard of it Um, so I did a bit of digging and uh, came up with um, this extraordinary story that uh, is kind of larger than life uh, stranger than fiction Mm -hmm. um, but was also the backbone upon which you could hang the bigger story I was talking about about alcohol and emigration and uh, the QI section is three minutes. It's wildly funny and entertaining, and I knew that you could bring that sensibility to the dark um, and have that light and shade in it. Mm-hmm. You'd have the kind of outrageous reconstructions of how they tried to kill him. Um, but also there's the, the, the serious side to that story, which is somebody who's trying to self-medicate mm-hmm. their depression, basically, which is right. a really grim uh, prospect so far from home, you know. And that that photo, how did you come? How did you come across the photo of of just Malloy laying dead? Yeah, um, it was in the court papers. Mm-hmm. Um, we got that, uh, and it was evidence in the court. Ah, nice. um, and I guess I know even though it's in black and white, but it was the pathologist talks about having dug him up. These guys with the gang who couldn't shoot straight. Yeah, she talks like Mark, yeah. Mark Simpson. She does. She does. <laughs> she smoked a lot of. Um, and she said, if you poison somebody with carbon monoxide, the coloring stays in your skin up to three weeks later. So when they dug him up, they went, "Uh oh, I know what happened here." You know, <laughs> uh, so right? That, that was their undoing. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's not about getting rid of the murals, it's not about getting rid of the politics on the murals, but it's about asking people, what is it that you want? What is your vision? What is your fear? Alright, so my first question is, why aren't they taking on sectarianism as seriously as they should be? Do you have any idea why, or is it just a lapse of just communication? And um, I, I actually don't really know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes in politics we've seen this with British rule, is it's often better to divide than rule. 
you know, it's divide and rule sometimes, you know, so sometimes it actually helps um, some, some types of political agenda when you don't have a united group of people. It actually helps maybe more when, when people are divided and they don't actually get to realise the big secret that they're actually all the same, really, and they actually would all get along if they were allowed to live together in peace. Mm. Or, I suppose, just, you know, it's a difficult subject to, to, tr- to deal with mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it just stirs so much emotion in people uh, and people don't know really how to sit down and engage in very practical things that might bring someone together, it's, it's, it, it's, you know, it doesn't happen, uh, I suppose, overnight or anything. You know, it doesn't, uh, but it, you need a, a long-term sort of plan where, you know, everyone's agreeing, and when you're in a climate that it's quite difficult to get people together and conti- in a continued way, mm-hmm. uh, I suppose, you know, it's, it just doesn't get dealt with. It's kind of right. We'll, we'll, we'll go for the easy things, you know. We'll concentrate on something, you know, which is a little bit easier, and it kind of gets a little bit. And maybe by concentrating on the easy subjects, right. then you know we'll deal with sectarianism that way. But you know, really, it has to be kind of t- uh, maybe um, tackled head on, and you know, you know, people's should be challenged a bit more perhaps you know about you know their their own personal views right. which perhaps sure. isn't happening enough and, and actually what you're saying David as well it's reminding me of the of a lot of the stuff that goes on in Northern Ireland and it's like it's sticking plasters it reminds me of the scenes in the film where we have graffiti it's painted out someone does it again, it's painted out it's like a sticking plaster over the problem right. they're painting it out it's not solving the problem you know, there needs to be a medium to long term plan not a short term sticking plaster attempt at solving the problems you need to go to the root of the problem and I mean, from our extensive research and just our lives living in Northern Ireland the, se- the school system is segregated the housing is segregated you know, if you don't have people living together, not living in parallel worlds where they don't meet, people actually living together, you know, all this is going to just take forever to um, become a normal society. And that's what all everyone wants anywhere in the world, is just to have a life, to have a job, to have a family, you know, to live in peace and just... That, that, you know, it's it's not that complicated, you know, and... Um, I, I really do think that there's an urgent need to do, to address this whole issue of um, segregated lifestyles, and it starts, you know, with children. Right, which actually leads me to my next question. What, because for America, it's a lot, it's a, I don't know if it's different, in a, like the word segregation here is a lot, it's associated with something else, but what is segregated in in Ireland, what is it that's segregated? Why is it segregated? I I've li- I literally know nothing about this. Well, it's it's uh, segregated in terms of it's divided into Catholic and Protestant. So they would be right. the two, you know, the two different, I suppose, religions or factions. You could call it. it it's you know, again, even the terminology is quite complex and confusing in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. Um, very sensitive, you know, yeah. so you would have 
originally, I suppose you would have had the Catholic and Protestant, which are religions, but actually now, you know, a lot of people will say, they won't say Catholic, they'll say nationalist. Uh-huh. Right, and then the other side would be um, loyalist. Right. You know, but there are different words, but basically it's two sides. It's right. two sides of the same coin. And they're and, literally uh, not allowed to mix? Well, they go to different schools. Catholics go to one type of school. Protestants go to another. There are very few integrated schools where kids from both religions go to the same schools. And as well as that, like in our film, Michael Doherty, who's been working in Peace and Reconciliation for his whole life, basically, he says 98% of our housing is segregated, of yeah. social housing is segregated. You know, so um, our own city of Derry, um, we have, you know, originally it would have been, I think before the Troubles, um, before we were kind of around, I think it was, um, the areas were more mixed, mm-hmm. where people did actually live together in peace, but then the Troubles came about, and, and you know, a lot of Protestants or Loyalists moved out. They felt they had to move out of the kind of, mixed areas, you know, and I, I guess it was kind of like factions kind of start. you know, people didn't feel safe in areas, um, again because of many of the markers that they would see, the type of graffiti the type of murals, the type of slogans in a, a community, it tells you straight away, you're not wanted here this is ours, mm-hmm. go away you know, and you don't feel safe so mm-hmm. the, the river in Derry would have previously been kind of a divide with Catholics on one side Protestants on the other side. I mean, and there still are people to this day, Catholics who've never been across the river and Protestants who've never been across the river. And I know people from both sides who've never, ever crossed the river. Wow. You know, it's mad. Crazy. You know? It's kind of geographical divide. Divide, Which happens many places. Like, you know, it does. But, um, but then you see there's a fear factor and then the whole issue of children. Like if you don't educate the children together and they're wearing uniforms, it means children are afraid even to walk into or walk past, not even into, an area of a different persuasion and they get beaten up. So they actually do get beaten up, you know, because people will go, oh, you're different, you, you're, you're uniform, you're Catholic or you're Protestant, like both. And um, and it's 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 tr- really terrible. It's heartbreaking, actually, heartbreaking, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's time for change. Yeah. Time for change. Yeah. Uh, we no just... more sticking plasters, please. Right. We would like some change. Right. So thanks both very much. Thank Appreciate you. it. Thank you.